Well, good morning again. I asked you several, six weeks or so ago, to please pray for a former seminary student in India who was in her last illness, Susie Verghese. She passed on into glory. Um, I don't know exactly when or where, under what circumstances, but I've been told that. And so those of you who prayed for her, thank you very much. So if I was a... uh, professor, and this was a class, I would begin by say, saying, take out a piece of paper and a pen, and we're going to start with a test, okay? Last week, I spoke to you about where to look during the Lord's Supper, right? And I said, look first within, you could write this down, I'm sure, and do self-examination in accordance with what 1 Corinthians 11 says in verse 28. Uh, and you do that to... Uh, establish your need for Christ. You look within and you see a lot of, uh, this is not a, a, a technical term, you'll read in the theologies, but you'll see spiritual grunk, <laughs> okay? Uh, as you'll get depressed if you look too long, uh, in so many words. So I said you look within, and then secondly, you look back at the substitution of Jesus Christ in his life. He perfectly kept the law. He substituted in his death when he died on the cross, the death we deserved. Then he defeated death in the resurrection. So you look back. Then thirdly, you look up. Jesus' arms are wide open saying, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Uh, He wants us to fellowship with him and and be with him. And he wants us to be with him so, so much he sent the Holy Spirit to abide with us until he comes again to take us to himself. Look within, look back, look up. Look forward to the Lamb's wedding banquet of Revelation 19, the eternal banquet when he will, we will feast with him at his table forever. And lastly, look around. Uh, look around at the body of Christ, uh, which I said a few things about last week and I'm going to say more about it uh, as we look again at 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and... Um, so I want to direct your attention to that. Um, you might say, well, didn't we read this passage uh, last week? And the answer is yes, and we're going to read it again. Because uh, uh, you didn't get it, right? No. <laughs> uh, so we're going to look at this again, and, and actually even again another time. But as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 17, I want to remind you we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And so let's pray and ask God who inspired it to help us understand it, and then we'll have a look. Our Father and God, uh, we thank you f- that we have your word, that we're not in the dark, that you have, you have re- revealed yourself in creation, and you've revealed yourself in redemption. Uh, I think of the way you revealed yourself to Israel when you brought them out of Egypt and their bondage with many miracles, and you revealed yourself to us preeminently in the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And uh, that boggles our minds, Lord, to think that you became like us so that we could be made more like you. So I pray that you'll teach us today more and more about um, the Lord's Supper uh, we, we confessed in our prayer of confession uh, sins of, of the mind, uh, the way our thinking is, is not good, where it's messed up, where it's fallen. I, I pray you'll send your spirit to help us to understand and apply uh, this part of your word uh, as we seek to 
uh, gain uh, additional uh, information and transformation about how we go about the Lord's Supper. Use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus, and we pray in His name. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, whoever therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this word won't fade. It's God's word, and it bides forever and forever. One of the very sad and, I think, discouraging realities about humans is that we are able to contradict ourselves in sometimes subtle and sometimes very blatant ways. Um, We can encourage purity while practicing impurity. Sad to say, so many ministers have been found out about that one. We can exhort people unlovingly and unkindly to be loving and kind. I've done that. We can, um, we, can, we can exalt frugality, being frugal in regard to one thing, and spend profligately in regard to another. Churches can hang out welcome signs and then be unwelcoming. It's really one of the sad realities of our fallen condition, how we contradict ourselves so blatantly. The church at Corinth was contradicting itself in regard to its practice of the Lord's Supper. How so, you might say? Well, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is designed in part 
to visibly demonstrate the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible open and will turn back one chapter to 1 Corinthians 10 at verse 17, uh, writing on the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, Paul said, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Uh, the church is many, many of us, diverse people, uh, even in this room. Uh, uh, ben prayed for the church in Ukraine. They, 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 that's another, it's another group. And, and, and it, I could tell you for, for several minutes about different groups I've worshiped with around the world. Um, um, I actually even preached to a, a, a group of Iranian refugees in a church in Athens, Greece one time. I mean, it's amazing. Because God is at work around the world and people that are different, different colors, different languages, different. The church is many, just like a physical body has many different parts. But there's only one body and there's only one church. And that's illustrated in the fact that we all partake of the one bread. And what does that mean? We all partake of the one bread. Well, we're all saved in the same way, by the same grace of the same Christ. Right? Yes. And, and we're, if we are people of faith, faith, by faith we're united to Jesus Christ. So, they, I'm asserting, and I'm going to show you later in the passage, are contradicting themselves in the way they take the Lord's Supper because they are denying the visible unity of the church, which is a reality. The practice of the church at Corinth, the manner in which they celebrate the Supper of the Lord, contradicted the visible unity expressed in the sacrament, the unity for which Jesus prayed, the unity for which Jesus came, the unity for which Jesus died. If, if you look in John 17, there's a marvelous uh, passage in John 17, uh, beginning at verse 21 where Jesus says he's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, the expressed unity, the visible unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an apologetic, if you will, to convince the world that Christ has come in the flesh. The glory that you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one even as we are one, and I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Not long after I moved to Birmingham, Alabama in 1986, a friend of mine uh, said, um, Johnny Long, Sally, you'll know who, uh, uh, said, hey, come on, go with me Thursday to John 17 Fellowship. I said, what's John 17 Fellowship? I mean, I was a rookie, you know, in Birmingham. I didn't know what John 17 Fellowship was. He said, well, come, you'll see. So I go, and they're Baptists, and they're Presbyterians. We were kind of a token, the Presbyterians. There weren't many of us. Uh, there were blacks, and there were whites, and, and there were Episcopalians. And what were they about? They just got together to pray. Why was that called John 17 Fellowship? Well, read the passage I just read. <laughs> It was trying to have an expression, visible expression, real expression uh, of unity that built brotherhood over time. It really did. These people at Corinth 
are not expressing the unity for which Jesus prayed. Do we do that? Do I do that? Well, I, I want to explore that with you this morning. So first of all, I want to look at the practice of the church at Corinth. And then secondly, I want to look at some critical questions that flow from their practice. And then we'll move on from that. Well, the picture that's presented of this practice of this church at Corinth is a very ugly picture, if you read in the details. It's a very ugly picture. They are coming together as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably on the Lord's Day, to have a meal or a feast, to eating. Uh, They call it the love feast. Some people, you talk about eat and eating in verses 21 and verse 34. And to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And that sort of thing was very common, actually, in a lot of different religions, not just in Christianity, but among the early Christians. They would come together and feast together and then have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The problem in verse 21 is that each one goes ahead with his own meal. You get that? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Uh, The poor didn't have anything. They were hungry. The rich were guilty of drunkenness and gluttony. doesn't mention those words, but that's what he's saying. Verse 33, it says, they're not waiting for one another. He encourages them in verse 33 to wait for one another. And the obvious thing is they're not waiting for one another. And and apparently there was no schedule and no regard for others. Uh, You know, maybe you were taught as a kid like I was, you wait till everybody's served until you start, son. You just want you to get straight on that. I want to teach you that. That, You know, some of us were taught that as good manners. So it was like this. Imagine you have a a church covered dish or some kind of church gathering, okay? And um, everybody said, bring food. And when you get there, the elders stand up or, or it's just assumed everybody will eat their own food. And we won't put it out on the table to share. Really, I've never been to one like that, thank God, you know. But that's what they were doing. So they went, some people brought filet mignon, or the equivalent, and they ate it themselves. And other people had nothing. And they just sat there and watched the people eat the filet mignon. Are you kidding me? Read the text. No, I'm not kidding you. That's what happened there. You think, that's not right. Well, no, it's not. That's what Paul's point is, of course. Some are drinking $150 bottle of wine and the rest of them have water. Are you kidding me? Some of them drank that wine so much they got drunk, which proves, brothers and sisters, they used alcoholic wine and not fake wine. Just an aside, okay? Just an aside. So the picture that's presented it's pretty ugly. It's an ugly picture. It's, it's almost unbelievable when you stop and think about what was going on. And the evaluation that Paul makes is really strongly negative, right? Look at verse 17. It's not for the better, it's for the worse. No celebration of the sacrament would be better than what you guys at Corinth are doing. Wow. Really? This is very strong and very serious. He says in verse 20, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Oh, my. 
It's not God's design, what you're doing. It's not God's intention. It's not just a mutation. It's a mutilation of what God intends. It's so grotesque that the real thing is not on display at all. He says very clearly in verse 22, you're despising the church. He's done talking about a building, brothers and sisters. He's talking about people. The church in the New Testament always refers to people. He says you're despising the church. Uh, To despise is to treat with contempt, to look down on, to think nothing of. Now, it's not that, if you ask these people, that they would say that they despise the church, but their actions convey that they despise the church. They're despising their poorer brothers and sisters in Christ by the way they're celebrating this sacrament. He says in verse 28, you humiliate those who have nothing, which means they put them to shame and disgrace. Well, so the picture is ugly. The evaluation is is pretty negative. And, And I want you to notice how high the stakes are. In verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, I'll come back to this verse, eats and drinks judgment in himself. That's why many of you are weak or ill and some have died. You mean? You mean there were people in Corinth that had died because they were taking the Lord's Supper in the wrong way? It seems to be what the text is saying. You say, man, that's really serious. Yeah, most of us would say that's really serious. So, what's the problem there? Is the problem that there's some toxicity in these elements? Oops, did it. Sorry, guys. Are the elements themselves toxic? No, I think they're sinful, as we're going to see, in a very ordinary way. But they're sinful in a way and to a degree and at a place where God is very negatively reactive. God is rightly out for his own glory, especially in the church. How is God glorified in the church? Well, one of the ways God is glorified in his church when, is when people who are significantly different come to Christ and to one another. They who are naturally different by race and gender and education and society and economics and culture and background. So that's what the church is. I mean, I said, I could tell you just story after story after story. We, I bet we've been overseas 20, 30 times and worshipped with cultures that are just drastically different. Matter of fact, that saying being God is good all the time, all the time God is good, I learned that in a slum in uh, Quito, not Quito, in uh, grief. Kingston, Jamaica. Yeah, in a slum in Kingston, Jamaica, in a church in Kingston. I mean, it's a slum. Uh, The missionary took me there, wouldn't admit it until we left the last time. He said, well, Alan, I I, I told him, I said, this place looks pretty sketchy, Woody. He said, no, no place safer than the will of God. We drove back in the next day. I said, this place really looks sketchy to me, Woody. He said, we're okay. When we drove out the last time, he said, Alan, I just want you to know this is the worst slum in Kingston. (laughs) I said, thanks, Woody. (laughs) But there are believers there. 
People for whom Jesus bled and died. And they're all over the world. Some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the world does not know how to get unity amidst the diversity. The world has no clue. The world's method of unity is, you be like me and we can get along. Well, that's not going to happen. It's hopeless if that's the way to have unity. Absolutely hopeless. We'll never have unity if the way to unity is you be like me. You get a white guy and a black guy together and say, well, how are they going to get together? They're never going to be like one another. I had a friend in Birmingham named Ron Carter uh, who was, let's say, dark-complected. We used to have a lot of fun together. We were both involved with the inner city Christian school. And Ron was the executive director, and we used to get up, when we were in front of people together, we'd say, hey, this is my brother Ron. And people would just die laughing. Well, he's my brother, but obviously he wasn't my brother in a physical and biological sense. So how do you get unity amidst diversity? Well, if God's way is you're both united to Jesus Christ. And it's not Christ plus my race or Christ plus my education or Christ plus my money or Christ plus this or Christ plus that. It's Christ and no more. No more and no less. No less. By the way, people that preach you're not saved by Christ plus, they practice Christ plus. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. What's the gap between you and God? What do you mean? The moral gap? Let's just do that one. The moral gap. What's the moral gap between you and God? You say, well, that's pretty big. (laughs) I mean, the gap between God and me is this much. This much. I can't stretch my arms far enough to illustrate the gap between God and me. What's the gap between you and the Christian on the face of the earth that's most unlike you? Compared to the gap between God and me, the gap between me and any Christian in the world is that small, that small, that small. And God bridged the gap, and He says to us, now you bridge the gaps. You be like me. You practice the gospel in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh. So the gospel is just not... Believe in Jesus, take a ticket, and when the train leaves for heaven, I get on with the ticket? No. It's a whole lot more than that. It's believe the gospel. What did I say? Discover one time. Digest the gospel. Work it through your life. Apparently, there are some practices among professing Christians which reflect so badly on God's glory that he will discipline or remove the people so involved rather than allow the sinful practice to continue. There were some people in Corinth that had died. There were some people that were weak. There were some people that were ill because of the way they did the Lord's Supper and the way they contradicted the gospel in the way they practiced the supper. I've got a friend that says, that's thick smoke. Yeah, that's real thick smoke. Real thick smoke. So, 
that's their practice. Now, I want to go through two or three critical questions flowing from their practice. In verse 29, I mentioned earlier I'd come back to this verse. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does it mean to discern the body? There's a lot of discussion on that today, uh, and there's been a lot of uh, discussion about that in, in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition. What exactly uh, uh, does that mean? If your Bible, whatever Bible you're carrying, happens to say in verse 29, um, for anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body of the Lord... The, bo- the words of the Lord have been added by the editors. They're not in the original Greek text. And, 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 and so we've got to decide, well, what does he mean when he says there um, uh, to discern the body? Now, one possibility, and, and I think historically in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, it is the predominant uh, interpretation, is to take discerning the body as to see Jesus' body symbolically represented in the sacrament. In other words, you've got to know that the bread represents his body and the cup represents his blood. And, and that's the historical predominant uh, interpretation. And, and, and it's obviously true, as well as historically predominant. It fits well with some other verses here in verse 27, where it talks about the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, and, and so in, in verse 27 it says, of the Lord, okay. And, and so people would say in verse 29, is he's just using a partial expression for the fuller expression of, of saying discerning the body uh, of the Lord. And like I said, that's, that's certainly possible and historically predominant Sad to say, though, it doesn't fit the context very well, the context of the passage. It's difficult to believe that the people at Corinth did not understand that the juice or wine represented the blood of Jesus and the bread represented the body of Jesus. Perhaps they did not know that, but it seems to me very unlikely. It's so very elementary. Does he mean, in verse 29, what he says in the other verses, uh, the body and blood of the Lord? Or is he taking a different track for a particular reason? And it's impossible to answer this question grammatically. Uh, I don't care how much or how long you study the Greek of the text, you won't come to the answer that way. You've got to look at the context. You've got to look at the context. And I think it's much more likely that what the apostle is saying is that you've got to discern, when he says uh, in verse 29, discern the body, he's talking about the church. He's talking about discerning that the church is the body of Christ, that the church are my fellow believers, that the church are my brothers and sisters in Christ, that the church, everybody who's there, is redeemed by the same blood by which I am redeemed. And therefore, seeing ourselves as equals... Before God. That it is seeing that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3.28. That fits the context very, very well. And it's certainly exegetically permissible by way of interpretation. 
What does that mean for us? Well, it's because we share in Christ, in salvation and in the sacrament. We should share our food and drink with one another in the love feast. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the um, chapter 26, uh, entitled, Of the Communion of the Saints, if I can ever get to it, there are some incredibly, incredibly strong statements about the communion of the saints. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with Him... And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. And he goes on to talk about the communion we have with Jesus ought to uh, lead to a communion with one another, that we share our gifts with one another, we share our food and clothing and shelter, that we help our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a very strong statement, often neglected, I think, by almost everybody uh, in the PCA in chapter 26 there. I'll have it in my reference in the notes, okay? You can make copies for everybody at the Men's Connect, all right? Enormous passage. What he's saying is that we all need Jesus, and we all need the same amount of Jesus to be saved. No one can say, no one can say before God, well, you know, it takes a little bit less of the grace of Jesus for me to be saved than him or her or them to be saved. Because if you think that, you've got a Christ plus gospel. If you think it takes less of the grace of Jesus Christ for you to be saved than for anybody else on the earth to be saved, you don't understand the gospel quite well yet. What is the basis for our fellowship with one another in Christ? It's Christ alone. It's Christ plus nothing. It's not Christ plus our money, Christ plus our race, Christ plus our education, Christ plus my gender. What does all this say about children in the Lord's Supper? That's a hot topic in the PCA and has been for at least a decade. You know, we have five membership questions that go roughly like this. This is the Carter paraphrase, not what you read in the Book of Church Order. The first question is, do you need Jesus? The second question is, will you receive Jesus? The third question is, will you live for Jesus? The fourth question is, will you live for Jesus in the church, among your brothers and sisters? And the fifth question is, will you live in the church under the authority of the leadership? So, if your view is, well, if all a child needs to come to the table is to say, well, I love Jesus, I want to be saved by Jesus, then you might say that the last three questions are pretty irrelevant for membership. But what if, what if you think about what Paul is enjoining here? What Paul is saying here, and I touched on this last week, what Paul is saying here is, look, you're professing vertically, you're looking in the face of Jesus and saying, I need you, I love you, I want you, I receive you. And Paul is saying you need to take that profession, your vertical profession, and express it horizontally in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just at the table, but in all your living before him. Well, if that's what's required 
then it seems to me that this would argue for an older age to come to the table because instead of just saying, I'm a sinner and want a Savior, you've got to have some degree of maturity to say, and I understand what that means in terms of living it out in relation to my brothers and sisters in Christ, that I have some understanding of what it's like to be a part of a group and that those people are different from me, and even though they're different from me, I understand the gospel enough to, to, well enough to say it doesn't matter. My two cents. You think about it. So the first interesting question coming out of their practice is, what does it mean to discern the body? And I said, I think it means to see the body as the body of Christ. It's to see the church. And to see that I don't have a leg up on anybody. It's to see that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Absolutely level. So second important question growing out of this understanding and what went wrong at Corinth is what is worthy partaking? Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Now again, it's very deep in historical uh, Presbyterianism to think in terms of worthy partakers. Now listen carefully, okay? Some of you might be grossed out where I'm going to go here because I'm going to use... Uh, I'll sound a little bit like an English teacher at school, okay? And you'll forgive me of that because it'll help you, all right? If you say worthy partakers, you're taking the word worthy as what? An adjective. But in the Greek text there, the word worthy is an adverb. Does that make a difference? It makes a lot of difference, brothers and sisters. Because people have said things like, are you worthy to come to the table? Well, if you say yes... You've immediately said you're not worthy, right? But if you say, well, it has to do with the manner I come, if it has to do with the stuff Paul is talking about in this passage, well, that's really different. Is he talking about something about me? I'm a worthy person? Or something about the way, the manner, and see it's presented adverbially, in verse 27, in an unworthy manner. He's, having, he's talking about the way we do it. Presbyterians have said, well, the way I make myself worthy is I, is I stir up my faith and repentance to a very high level. Really? Well, how high is high enough? I've never felt like I've stirred up my faith and repentance high enough. i got a long way to go on that. Worthy partaking, I think, is that I apply the gospel in the way I partake. That in the sacrament, I walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, seeing others is more important than myself. And in the case of the Lord's Supper, it has to do with the horizontal social relationships within the church. To profane the body and blood of our Lord in verse 27 is to act as if the gospel does not make a difference in relationships. It's when I act like some members of the church are second rate because they lack money or fine clothing or education or possessions or positions of importance or power in the world or in the church. That's when I've profaned the body and blood of the Lord. 
I've said this before, but I'll read it again out of my notes. In Corinth, they professed the gospel vertically, but denied the gospel horizontally in the way they treated one another at the Lord's table. They were denying the gospel practically in the way they conducted themselves at the love feast and the sacrament that followed. The sacrament is designed, as you look above the passage, the parts of the passage I've been dealing with, to proclaim the Lord's death. But their conduct was as if he had never come and that he didn't make a difference. If I'm correct, and I really believe I am, then a professing Christian could sin against the body and blood of the Lord in context other than the Lord's Supper. In James 2, uh, James talks about preferential seating for the rich when they come to church. In Galatians, Paul talks about avoiding eating with Jews, or you might say Hispanics or blacks or any other group by application. In, in, Gala- in Ephesians 2, he talks about denying entrance to other groups. So what then is biblical self-examination? It has to do with the vertical. Yes, do I love Christ? Do I have faith in Christ? Am I sorry for my sin? Am I repentant uh, in regard to my sin? Do I realize that sin offends God and destroys my life? But it also has to do with the horizontal. Do I see my brothers and sisters and myself on the same level ground before Christ? Am I willing to live with them in relationship in such a way that reflects this? Am I willing to deny myself for them because Jesus denied himself for me? I'm willing, am I willing to wait and willing to share? Am I willing to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus has served me? What went wrong at Corinth was that they contradicted with their practice what they professed with their mouth. They were profaning the body and blood of the Lord. They failed to discern the Lord's body, the church, for what it was. They failed to examine themselves rightly. Many of them were unworthy partakers. That is, they were partaking unworthily. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand and believe the gospel. Uh, We need to let it work through in our relationships. We need to trust the one who never contradicted himself, whose message and methods were always in sync, and who died for our contradictions. God's glory in the church demands that we give attention to this, and our very lives depend on it as well. Let us pray. Lord, our God, forgive our sins. Forgive that we all too often contradict with our lives what we profess with our lips. Um, and, and sometimes we even do it at your table of unity. Forgive us of that. Grow us, teach us, defend us. Correct and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.